uh, the four horsemen of the apocalypse as a motif uh, is well established in popular culture. Um, if you Google the four horsemen of the apocalypse in popular culture, in film, television, literature, music, you'll find hundreds and hundreds of references. Uh, Clint Eastwood, The Pale Rider. In American culture, I've discovered, four Supreme Court judges in the 1930s were known as the four horsemen of the Supreme Court insofar as they had the ability united to overrule any of President Roosevelt's initiatives that they didn't like, which turned out to be all of them. Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, and Daniel Dennett have been referred to as the four horsemen of the new atheism, recognizing their apostle-like authority to set the definitions and boundaries of both the new atheism as well as the new uh, religious criticism. Um, perhaps semi-famously, the four horsemen of relational breakdown or relationship breakdown have been identified by John Gottman as criticism, defensiveness, contempt, and stonewalling. But there are any number of other examples as well. The phrase, the four horsemen, or the four horsemen of, suggests any group of people or things uh, that are somehow game-ending or, or have uh, some kind of final and decisive aspect to them. And as I hope to show, the bewildering, bewildering variety of uh, references in our culture, in our literature and art, to the four horsemen does not help us to interpret their meaning in their context in the Bible. No, it only adds to the mystery. So then, today, we meet the four horsemen of the apocalypse in their natural environment. Revelations chapter 6. And so today, we'll try to figure out what exactly is this text about and what does it mean? Well, this is now the third week into a short series of sermons on the book of Revelation. We've already thought about how interpretation of this text depends upon understanding a literary genre, a style of writing known as apocalypse, a style of writing that was popular for about 600 years, from roughly 400 BC through to 200 AD. We've already considered how the Apostle John who was in exile in the land of Patmos, and sorry, in the island of uh, Patmos, he experienced God-given visions, visions that he plainly struggled to translate into language. He uses the word like a lot, signaling that time and time again, his descriptions are just as simply as close as he can get there. They're just approximations. It was like this or that, but translate his experiences he does. And not just into affidavits or witness statements, no, actually he translates his experiences into an artistic masterpiece using, as we've said, a particular style and form of literature, apocalyptic literature. And he's done this for the sake of his readers, who were, in the first instance, the members of seven churches in the Roman 
province of Asia, an area that today we call Western Turkey. Well, apocalyptic literature, it employs symbols, extended metaphors and complex analogies. These symbols can be mysterious at first, but can usually be understood by seeing how they make reference to stuff that's already in the culture of the recipients of the letter. Um, and, you know, what, how is this symbol reflected in their cultural heritage? And usually, the symbol is reflected in the Old Testament. The Old Testament helps us to understand what's being said in these visions. And last week, we looked at chapter 5, which presented us with a crisis and then a celebration. A crisis. No one was found worthy to open the scroll in God's hand, a scroll sealed with seven seals. Celebration. The lamb who was slain was found worthy. Jesus of Nazareth, who is Lord and who reigns at the Father's right-hand side, was found worthy because of the perfection and purity of what he had done, offering himself up for others in order that they might be saved. The celebration of the Lamb is very great, not simply because he was worthy, but because his worthiness is the product of his victory. And through his victory, humanity is victorious when they put their faith in Jesus Christ and obey him. The Lion of Judah, the, the Root of David, the Lamb who was slain, he is victorious. And as we saw last week, Jesus' victory is an absolute, finished, and final, complete, over everything, victory. Jesus reigns. Jesus Christ is Lord. Every power and authority and dominion and agency is under him, is under his power and authority and dominion and agency. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. It means that we can trust him completely. And in this, we'll find him completely trustworthy. And it means that we can never trust him too much. And I concluded last week by saying, yep, it's true. John is now actually going to show the seven churches of Asia and us some difficult and frightening things. Some of those difficult and frightening things we found in our reading this morning. But... As I said last week, this is where we begin, in the throne room of God, knowing that Jesus reigns. That's where we begin. It is done. It is finished. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. Then, suddenly, chapter 6. The four horsemen of the apocalypse and just as there is a bewildering variety of references to the four horsemen in popular culture, so too there is a bewildering variety of interpretations as to their meaning in biblical context. Yet all kinds of interpretations. But generally speaking, two things are very clear. Firstly, one thing that's really clear is that the four horsemen of the apocalypse represent 
bad things happening. Conquest. One nation invading another in order to rule, oppress, and get rich. War. Divisions between nations resulting in widespread death and bloodshed, but also resulting in economic poverty and injustice. Death. And indeed, widespread death by means of human evil, natural disaster, environmental catastrophe, and natural boundaries being overridden. And again, in, in close view, sometimes when we look at, you know, when we, when we narrow down and look very, very carefully at one detail or another, it can be a bit confusing. Like, for example, in verse 6, whose voice is that? Verse 6 says, then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. Well, that sounds good, doesn't it? I mean, is that the voice of God demanding justice for the poor? Well, to be sure, that's actually exactly what it sounds like. But it's probably not. It's probably a fake voice of God. Um, what we're hearing is much more likely to be what we might call even fake news. It sounded like a voice among the four living creatures. And it's fake justice. Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages or six pounds of, of barley is not enough to feed a family on. And this is uh, survival rations. And what's that concern about the oil and the wine? Well, you know, it looks just, you know, be fair in how you trade these things, but, but no, given that there's just pronounced you know, starvation rations for a day's wages, that voice is more concerned about luxury items, which is what oil and wine are. In many ways, a number of commentators notice that the, these four horsemen seem to express the interests and values of a fake kingdom of God. Now, it's often said that the kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom. Ever heard somebody use that expression? The kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom? Actually, it's not. It's the right way up kingdom. Every other kingdom is upside down. British Empire, American Empire, every Roman Empire, um, uh, this multinational, that, every single other kingdom is upside down to one degree or another in its values. Now, with respect to timing, John could be seeing things that relate specifically to his own day, the Roman Empire, or he could be seeing things that relate to the end of the age in which we live, the fulfillment of all things, that end that has yet to happen. Tentatively, I think it might be both and everything in between. I think perhaps the four horsemen represent forces at work throughout all of human history. The four horsemen represent what we see every night on the news. But perhaps the four horsemen invite us to consider the complex interplay between those individually identifiable phenomena. Conquest, it's driven by greed. War is the result and widespread poverty, the result of that. Poverty is both the result of and the cause of economic injustice. It is the poverty of other people in other countries that allows us to enjoy fast fashion 
and good tea and coffee and chocolate. But enjoying cheap tea and coffee and fast fashion keeps those people poor. Economic injustice also leads to war, which again leads to poverty, leads to malnutrition, poor hygiene, disease, and epidemics. These things, in turn, lead to environmental degradation. Nothing's so in, in environmentally damaging as poverty. And that leads to natural boundaries and barriers collapsing, often with disastrous results. Ocean levels rising, predators being where they shouldn't be, and people being infected with viruses that belong to other species in other places, like chimpanzees or fruit bats, for example. Social, economic, health and environmental forces and phenomena, all bad, separate but interrelated, ultimately actually playing in tune as though some well-orchestrated symphony, but claiming very significant numbers of lives. So then, whilst there might remain ambiguity in the details, that's one thing that's clear, isn't it? One thing that's clear, the four horsemen represent bad things happening. There's a second thing that is equally clear, and that is they happen at Jesus' personal invitation. They are his initiative. The lamb opens the seal. The angels cry, come. They are armed with their arsenal, and out they go. Their authority to, to do bad things derives ultimately from God's authority vested in Jesus Christ, who is Lord. Now, what I've said uh, might uh, seem a bit shocking, but, but it's not a new message for the Bible. In the Old Testament, the Assyrians wiped the northern kingdom of Israel literally off the map. At the time, the Assyrians were infamous for their extraordinary cruelty and ruthlessness. Yet the Lord God Almighty spoke through the prophet Isaiah, saying, the Assyrians are my well-trained bees. I whistle for them and they come. The Assyrians are my barber, and I'm giving you a haircut. 200 years later, it was the Babylonians coming to humiliate the southern kingdom of Judah to destroy their land and take the people into exile. The prophet Habakkuk complained, this is all from you, Lord. How can you use wicked people to do your work? So to this week, our first picture, four horse riders sent out on a mission, a mission from God. This is going to prompt some complaints. So then, two more pictures. The first picture comes in response to the fifth seal being broken, and the second picture comes in response to the sixth seal being broken. And at a glance, they are very different visions, aren't they? Very different. The first, a heavenly vision of the souls of martyrs speaking to God from under the altar in heaven. The second vision, an earthly vision of earthquakes and cosmic collapse and people trying to hide in hills and crevices. But actually, the two pictures have a lot in common. They are both pictures of complaint. The first is a picture of the complaint of God's people. How long? How long, O oh God? And the second is a picture of the complaint of the people who do not belong to God. 
Who can stand this? There is also a theme of covering. Both pictures are concerned with covering. In the first picture, the martyrs are under the altar. Now, there hasn't been an altar mentioned before in any of the earlier revelations, so what altar? Which altar? Where altar? We know about a throne, but where is this altar? Well, I think this is symbolic of the martyrs, these people being covered by the sacrifice of Christ. They're covered by what Jesus did for them on the cross. They are under the altar, not on it. They are covered, forgiven by the blood of the Lamb. Jesus was sacrificed for them. By his blood, they are forgiven. Furthermore, they're given new coverings, new white robes. White is a, a color that is symbolic of victory. But in the Bible, from Genesis 3 onwards, the concern of being covered, the concern of having clothes from God, is, um, is not that of, of, of making sure that people are warm or even dressed appropriately, but rather the concern of clothes is that they are forgiven, that they are covered, that they have a covering from God. It's okay. You're covered. Covered by the altar, covered by the white robes. These people are covered, covered in, covered under the blood of the Lamb. Nevertheless, just as Jesus was sacrificed for them, so too they were sacrificed for Jesus. Lambs to the slaughter. They had been, quote, slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. What led to their murder was their testimony about the word of God, that Jesus Christ is Lord and that they're therefore not Caesar. They had maintained this testimony. In other words, we can safely presume they had maintained the testimony even under pressure, even under torture. No doubt they maintained this testimony when there was an easy way out, such as, look, for goodness sake, just... Just bow down to this little statue. Just put a pinch of incense on the fire and acknowledge that Caesar is Lord and you're free to rejoin your family. You're free to, to go about your business. It's easy. They cry out in a loud voice, in a mighty voice, saying, Until when, Master holy and true, will you not judge and avenge our blood from the ones dwelling upon the earth? And again, this is a complaint, but it's a common complaint. It's a common complaint throughout the Bible. The Psalms put very similar words on our lips when we pray them. This was Habakkuk's prayer. You are a God of justice. How can you stand by when such things happen? And these words are faithful and true words because they testify to the speaker's absolute conviction and confidence in the holiness of God and in his sovereignty. We know what he's like. And we know he's in charge. So how can this possibly happen? As for the souls under the altar, they're told to be patient because there's a lot more of this yet to come. When Jesus opens the sixth seal, John sees a vision of complete cosmic and universal upheaval. The very structure 
structure and fabric of reality seems to collapse. A great earthquake, the sun fails to shine, moon turns to blood, stars fall out of heaven like fruit off a tree in a gale, the skies rolling up like a roller blind, and the mountains and islands all out of place. Are we seeing something that will happen at the conclusion of our age? Or is this a stylized description of the forces at work in every age? Or both? Again, I'm not sure. But what we see is the, the people of earth, the people of earth in contrast to the people of God, we see the people of earth flee and try to hide in caves and in crevices between rocks on the mountains. And they pray a, a, a similar prayer, but they pray it to the rocks and the mountains. Fall on us. Cover us. Because this is God. This is God's doing. And this is the day of the Lamb's wrath. And who can stand it? Interestingly, their testimony shows that they know this suffering is from God. And they know that it is justified. They know that it is evidence of his holiness. Yet rather than flee to God in order that he might save them and cover them, they beg the rocks to do it. They want protection from God. Actually, both are visions of people who want protection from God, just protection from God in completely opposite senses. Uh, not protection from God in the sense of those under the altar who receive protection from God in the sense of protection sourced from God. These other people, the people of the earth, they want protection from God in the sense of any means possible to keep him at arm's length. They want deliverance from God who they see as their enemy. Now, at this point, you might just be wondering, what about the seventh seal? What happens when the seventh seal is opened? And you might think, oh, that must be in chapter 7. Actually, it's not in chapter 7. It's in chapter 8. But as soon as the seventh seal is opened, we actually stop hearing about the scroll altogether and its seven seals, and we start hearing about seven trumpets. And as the seven trumpets story moves to its conclusion, we actually start hearing about seven bowls. So the story keeps on morphing, if you like, seamlessly from a story about a scroll with seven seals into a story about seven trumpets into a story about seven bowls. Those two stories, the ones about the trumpets and the bowls, they might be telling the same story from, the same, from, from different points of view because they keep on using the same imagery and for the trumpets and the bowls, the imagery comes straight from the book of Exodus and Moses and Pharaoh and, and the, the signs of judgment that the Lord wrought in those days when he delivered his people up out of the land of slavery. So then we've got those two stories that are actually quite closely related. What is chapter 6 doing? Well, it might, it might be kind of like an overture. We hear, as we get ready for the big story, we hear all the themes and harmonies, the motifs that we'll become familiar with as we watch the big picture unfold. And with that thought in mind, I think we might be correct in thinking that the two questions posed in chapter 6 will turn out to be the two most important questions with which the book of Revelation deals 
with? And those two questions are these. The faithful of the Lord ask, how long, O Lord, until you judge? And the unfaithful ask, who can stand this? Well, as we've uh, remembered in our earlier sermons, John's individual letters in chapters uh, 2 and 3, he, he writes individual letters, revelations to each of the individual churches, and we see that they're struggling churches. They're churches in trouble. Lots of different things happening, a lot of variety with respect to their troubles, but each church is in trouble. And the Spirit is saying to them, worse is on the way. And history would show precisely that. The Roman persecution of Christians, which would last for two centuries and at various times and in various places would be both brutal and intense, it was just getting started. John himself is in exile, possibly in prison, on the island of Patmos, not where he wants to be. He himself is being persecuted for the word of God and the testimony that he is maintaining. We too are in turmoil in the days in which we live. COVID-19 and climate change, pandemics, politics and pollution. Who, who can be trusted and who can't? And we're in turmoil. And, and so we ask, what is the relationship between Jesus and all the evil we see around us? Biblically speaking, the answer to that question is complex, not simple. Yet and nevertheless, we depart from biblical faith whenever we depart from affirming the absolute sovereignty of God over all. Satan doesn't so much as sneeze without Jesus' permission. But this is hard for us as human beings to reconcile with a God who is holy. In other words, that is to say, whose every thought, word and deed is good and perfect all of the time. All human beings, whether people of faith or not of faith, we, we live a lot of life in circumstances that seem to be extremely difficult to reconcile to the notion that Jesus Christ is Lord. Suffering will put us to the test. And, of course, the paradox of suffering, and our passage in, Revelations, in Revelation this morning reminds us of this truth. The paradox of suffering is that it leads some people to abandon God altogether, and yet for others they grow in their faith fiercely. I, I remember... Um, now, many years ago, I remember listening to a young couple talk about the death of their baby. Uh, they were speaking um, publicly. They were speaking at a graduation ceremony at Regent College, a Bible college in Vancouver. Their first and, at the time, only child had been born with a genetic abnormality, and it had taken her 10 weeks uh, to die. I remember sitting there and uh, um, listening and thinking, this is exactly the kind of thing that would lead others to abandon faith in God entirely. This is exactly the kind of thing that would lead some people to say, 
This proves that God doesn't exist. For how could he let such things happen? With respect to that young couple, and I, I don't remember specifically what they said, I'm remembering something from the year 1990, sorry, 1997, but I, I do remember that, that they chose to trust God. And as they put their trust in God, in the midst of overwhelming evil and terrible suffering, um, in the midst of something so terrible they couldn't have previously imagined that God would have even let it happen, they encountered God in new and remarkable ways. As they put their trust in God, he revealed himself to them through prayer, through the word, through human kindness, in ways they'd not ever known. As they poured out their hearts to God, no doubt often in the form of complaint, God shared with them his heart through Jesus Christ, his son. And their faith in Christ as their saviour grew and grew and grew. That, that doesn't mean that the death of their baby girl was really a good thing. No, no, it was evil. It was awful, an unimaginably evil thing that they were powerless to resist. Nor does it mean that there were silver linings that made everything okay. No, it doesn't. It wasn't okay. Likewise, somehow, and this is perhaps what's so hard about Revelation, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, in his absolute sovereignty, even in the face of overwhelming evil and maintain our testimony that he is Lord, holy and true, that's when we'll understand him in new ways. That he is holy and true in ways we hadn't previously imagined. Because the only victory we have is the victory that he had. It's through it. It's not over it. It's not under it, it's not around it, it's through it. Lambs to the slaughter. Jesus said, follow me. <laughs>